And welcome everyone, page 75 in our series, Relationships, a Mess Worth Making. I'll make a few announcements and then we'll get into the material itself. We have five lessons left in our series, counting today. There are 12 total. We've already done six, but I say we only have five more instead of six more. And that's because lesson 11 in your material is uh, an application lesson. So we're not going to do a lecture and a session on that one. So we have five more counting today. That means that we will finish on December the 20th. Today and the four weeks following will have us finishing our series on December the 20th. And then for the three weeks following that, December 27, January 3, and January 10, we will do as we always do. At the end of one of these series, we offer our three-week, what we call newcomer's orientation. And I will teach that, lead that in another part of the building for any of you who are interested in learning more about our church. So as the name suggests, it's for newcomers and it's an orientation to, to us, to community. It obligates you to nothing. It simply is informational for you to learn more about our church. We give you a booklet of material, and in a small setting like that, you can ask any questions that you might have about us, and it will just help you make an informed decision as to whether or not this would be the place that the Lord would have you to serve. So I encourage you, if you have never taken our orientation, then to consider doing that, and it will be December 27, January 3, and January 10. And then after that, I'll be gone for two weeks, and I will be in India uh, visiting our missionary Daniel Kumar there, so I will miss two Sundays, but I will be back for Sunday, January the 31st, and on uh, January the 31st, uh, we will start a new series that we will advertise to the community, and that one is going to be, You Mean the Bible Teaches That? Question mark. And it's going to cover topics that uh, people have questions about and what the Bible has to say about them, particularly ethical issues, things like abortion and capital punishment and homosexuality and those kinds of issues. So we have a series that we do by that name, and uh, we'll be advertising that as we did this one and encouraging you to come and invite somebody to come with you. But that will start on January the 31st, okay? So it gives you a little bit of long range of, of where we're going. But we are going to be looking at Lesson 7, page 75, in our relationship series today. And in each of these lessons, we have sought to answer one question. And rather than now as we get deeper into the weeks, reviewing each question every week as I have been, uh, I'm not going to do that for sake of time. But if you've not been here for previous sessions, I encourage you to listen to those, though, on our website and all of our messages uh, are always on our website, and so you can get those going back uh, a long way, a few years, actually. But today we want to answer this question. The lesson is on forgiveness, and we really want to look at three aspects of forgiveness. Forgiveness, who? Who forgives? And then how do I forgive, and why should I forgive? So we want to look at that issue today, beginning on page 75. Forgiveness, who should forgive? How do I go about doing that, and why should I forgive? Now, this issue of who should forgive is particularly acute for us because, as we have seen in previous weeks, our tendency is to say that the problem is outside of me. The problem is with my circumstance, or the problem is with the 
individual or individuals that I'm in relationship with. The problem is not me. The problem is outside of me. So when the question arises, who should seek forgiveness, the answer for many of us is obvious. You should. Somebody else should. Because the problem is not me. The problem is outside of me. But the scriptures probably will not surprise you to learn teach something else. If you're able to juggle your Bible with your notebook, turn to Matthew 18. If not, then you can just uh, listen as I read. And we'll look at Matthew 18 together in Jesus' parable, instruction and then parable there. And while you're turning to Matthew 18, let me give you another command of Jesus from another passage related to this issue of who should initiate forgiveness. We'll look at Matthew 18 in a bit, but in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in the midst of this Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is giving instruction on radically different val- a radically different value system by which his followers live, radically, to the root, to the very core, those who follow Jesus follow a different value system. And then that manifests itself in the way we talk and the way we behave. And so you find that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In the midst of that sermon, Matthew 5 and verse 23, this is what Jesus says. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, in this instance, who is it that's supposed to initiate the reconciliation that involves forgiveness? What is the person who has committed the offense? You remember that you have done something against your brother. Your brother has something against you. You're the offender. They're the offendee. And you go to them. And Jesus says, do this if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that there is that, leave the altar and go and do this. Now, what that means is, I, Jesus, don't want you showing up at church, the altar. I don't want you showing up at church with unreconciled stuff between you and other people. And so if you are the offender, you take care of that and then come back and offer your gift at the altar. So Jesus is saying, this is prerequisite to you worshiping me. Now, I think attendance would be lower if we followed what Jesus says. That you would have people going and saying, I've let this thing fester for years, years. And now I'm convicted and Jesus says, I need to take care of it and I'm going to take care of it. Go and take care of it, Jesus says. Okay? But who goes? It's the person who committed the offense in this case, Matthew 5. But then you have Matthew chapter 18. And verse 15. 
And it says in verse 15, this is Jesus speaking, if your brother sins against you, what do you do? What's the next word? Go. Now, hold up. So, if I'm the offender, I go. And if I'm the offended, I go. We're like going to run into each other on the way then. Which is exactly what Jesus has in mind. If you've done the offense, you go to make it right. If you have been offended, you've been sinned against, be willing to initiate. There should be no issue at all of having to coerce a follower of Jesus to seek to make things right. Whether you're the offended or the offender, you're willing to go. Now, that means that we cannot then, as followers, professing followers of Jesus, do what we used to do when we were little kids. You remember what we did? You got into a fight with your brother or sister. Your mom and dad had to break it up and said, you've both been bad. They don't really care about justice. Parents never care about justice. They care about peace. Okay? I mean... There were times where I was, the, I was the one who started it, and you know, I was the one who really got my brother going. Uh, but he retaliated, and here we go. And then you know, my mom didn't care that I was the one who was really initiating this thing. She just wants peace. And she would investigate a little bit, and she would say, so who, who, what happened? Well, Kenny, you know, slapped me. Did you slap him? Yeah, I slapped him. You know? And it's all on me for a minute. But then she would look at my brother and say, but you're not, you're not innocent either. Now, both of you, say you're sorry. And then what would we do as kids? We would say something like, I'll say I'm sorry, if what? Right? You say it first. Yeah, I forgot that one. <laughs> I was just going to go on your promise that you'll follow up, but no, you want, <laughs> you want it up front. That's true, if you say it first. You know, we carry that nonsense into adulthood. Why should I be the one to ask forgiveness? And Jesus doesn't give us that escape. Matthew 5, you're the offender. Matthew 18, you're the offended. In either case, take the initiative because you're a follower of mine. And that's what we do. And so Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen... Then you take one or two others along so that, and then notice this next phrase is in quotation marks, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that's in quotation marks because it's a quote from the first part of your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 19. And in Deuteronomy 19, if you were to read through that, you would find that there are rules of evidence there to bring a charge against someone. And in order to bring a charge against someone, there had to be sufficient evidence, and sufficient evidence including having at least two witnesses. So you've gone between the two of you. You've confronted the individual who has sinned against you in this case, and they will not listen. They will not heed. They will not confess. So now you take two others who know the, at least two others who know the offense. They're privy to it. 
They're witnesses, it says. They've seen what happened. They have knowledge of what happened. Now, some of you are saying, some of the stuff that happens to me, I'm the only one who knows. It's just me and the crumb I live with. And nobody else knows about it. So now what? So she gets off scot-free now. Now let me just ask you to just think for a minute. Just stick your Bible hat on for just a second. Does anybody really get away with stuff? Do they Ultimately, does anybody get away? No, they don't, do they? But we think that. They're getting away with this. <laughs> and they keep going to church every Sunday. And they sing the songs and they look the part. And I have to sit next to them. And just act like everything's great. All the while, they're refusing to reconcile. And they know they've sinned against me, and they won't do it. And Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar, but they do it every week. And now I don't have two or three witnesses. Well, listen, I'm telling you this for this reason. If there are not two or three witnesses, it stops there. And then God will take care of them. And we can trust God to take care of them. But... If there are two or three witnesses, we do want to call this brother or sister to repentance. And so you do take two or three others so that every word might be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And verse 17, if he refuses still to listen to them. Now notice here, tell it to who? The church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan. That would be an unbeliever. Because if someone is, is unwilling to confess sin, even to this extent, then one can conclude nothing other than they have never known the forgiveness that's been given by Jesus. And thus you must assume that they're an unbeliever. They may not be an unbeliever, but you have to treat it that way. Now, for some of you, you're reading through that and you're going, you've got to be kidding me. You would have to go to the church and say, so-and-so has committed this sin. It has been established. It is factual. But they are unrepentant. And you would have to tell that to the church. And then the church would have to send a communique to them to say, will you repent? You've got another chance to repent. And if they didn't, we'd have to treat them as a pagan? It would appear that's what Jesus is saying. Right? You say, well, then that's got to be like for really big stuff. You commit murder. If you commit murder, and we've got it on tape, and you refuse to confess, we're going to tell the church about it. So-and-so's in the slammer. They won't be at church for a while because they murdered somebody. Okay? It's got to be something big. It's got to be murder, or it's got to be adultery, or it's got to be stealing, and, and, and stealing a lot. Not paper clips, stealing something big, a car or something. It's got to be over something big, right? No. I mean, if you go through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, uh, lust in your heart is adultery. Hatred in your heart is, is murder. So Jesus doesn't say there's the big sins and the little sins. Here's the sin that has to be dealt with. It's unrepentant sin of whatever type. Do you all hear that? It's simply sin that someone refuses to deal with. Whatever it is, Jesus assumes that those who claim to be his followers are willing participants in the reconciliation process. And failure to do that signifies something deficient in what we claim to believe. And just so people know the seriousness of this, notice what Jesus says in verse 18 now. I tell you the truth. 
Let me just stop there. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. The King James says, verily, verily. From the Latin, veritas, this is true. So, I tell you the truth. Now, when Jesus starts with that, of course Jesus tells us the truth. But it's just like we saw in Hebrews chapter 7. God's promise and God's oath as a double indication of how serious this is. And so Jesus says, Verily, verily, I tell you the truth, verse 18. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you follow what I command you as God's people and God's church, then whatever decision you come to will be binding in heaven. That the God of heaven agrees with what you're doing here. That this is not just some rogue bunch of people who want to go and get somebody. This is people following what I say, and the God of heaven will ratify and validate the action that you have taken. Verse 19, again, if two of you on earth agree about anything, it will be done by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Now, a lot of times those verses are quoted out of context. And the idea is, here's what a church is. It's two or three people gathered in the name of Jesus, which is nonsense. A church is more than just two or three people gathered. Now, it might only have two or three people in it. There's no particular number, but it has more than that going on. They actually have someone who's, or someone's designated as leadership, the Bible teaches. They actually have a mission that they're seeking to carry out. There's all kinds of stuff that a church does. Jesus is not describing the definition of a church there. When he says two or three, didn't he just use two or three a few verses earlier? Every word is established by two or three witnesses. And what Jesus is saying is, when that happens before me, this is a solemn warning now to the offender that you're not just dealing with the two or three, you're dealing with me. Where these two or three are gathered, in my name, I am there with them. And so this is how seriously the God of heaven takes this notion of forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, Peter then speaks up. Verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times do I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And Peter has a number. How about seven? Because I've forgiven John seven times already. So it would be good if we could just say cap it at that. Now, actually, the reason he said up to seven times is because there was a rabbinical teaching at the time that said you forgive up to seven times. And so Peter comes and says, how many times? Peter wants to know, what's the final straw for this person? Because there's got to be a point at which I can let them have it. So how often do I do this? Up to seven times. Jesus says, verse 22, not seven times, 77 times. Or the King James says, I think, 70 times 7. Right? So either way, 77, 7, 490, Jesus' point is this. It's not a particular number. That there's not a particular calculation you do in keeping a record. And then he gives this parable. And please read it with me. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man owed him 10,000 talents. 
that was brought to him. Now, if you have a NIV, you'll see that the 10,000 talents has a little footnote by it, and it says, in equivalent terms, that's millions of dollars. A man who owed him millions of dollars was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children all be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him, verse 26. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity, canceled the debt, let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And how much is that? It's a few bucks. He grabs him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees, begged him, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. He refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and sold, told their master everything that had happened. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how, verse 35, my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Is that convicting? And you understand what Jesus is saying is you have been forgiven if you've come to Christ, come to God through Christ, you have been forgiven an infinite debt that you owed. And any debt that is owed you by someone else is relatively small. It's not insignificant, but it is relatively small compared to the debt that you have been forgiven, an infinite amount. And therefore, we of all people should be people ready to forgive because we have received this forgiveness. Now, if you'll just turn back a few pages to Matthew chapter 6, I want to just give you another verse to indicate how seriously Jesus takes this, and we'll move on. But in Matthew 6, Jesus is still in the, he's in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's here where he gives the disciples prayer, teaching them how to pray. And you all know what Jesus says in verse 12, that one of the petitions that we bring before God, verse 12, is forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. 4, verse 14, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father forgives you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I think we've read enough scripture from Almighty God to see that this is not optional. And he takes it extremely, extremely seriously. And so, as we look now at the notes on this issue of forgiveness, please understand, friends, that biblical Christianity is not about greed. It is about gratitude. And here's what I mean by that. A greed approach to our relationship with others, including our relationship with God, says this, I'll do in order to get. A gratitude approach says, I'll do because I've already been given. And biblical Christianity says, you have been given everything in Christ. That he has given everything up for you. That you are the recipient of his mercy in the form of a canceled, infinite debt. And now you respond 
by doing what I, Jesus, tell you, including seeking reconciliation with others, not for what you'll get out of it, but for what you've already been given by me. You do it not for greed, but for gratitude. The truth is, I may go to this person and say, this is what I've done. Will you forgive me? And they say, I'm touched. I'm delighted that God has worked in your heart in this way. And yes, I forgive you. And thank you for coming. And you go, okay, do you have anything else to say? No. I mean, really, I appreciate it. Thank you. And I forgive you. So I'm the only one who needs to seek forgiveness here? You've, you haven't done anything wrong? Oh, I guess I've been the bad guy all along here, right? You don't have anything to confess? Um, I mean, maybe, I don't know, let me think about it a little more. Oh, well, if you've got to think about it, forget it. You can't see it? Do you see what's happening when the person does that? They were not coming simply out of gratitude. I'll do it. What? And you do it. And if you don't do it, I sort of regret having done it. Yeah. Take back everything I, all that forgiveness stuff. Give me that back. Gratitude rather than greed is Jesus' way. Now look at page 75 with me then. Just think about, in the middle of the page, on page 75, think about how you would define forgiveness. You'll see how God defines it now going forward, but just think for a moment about how you would define forgiveness. What does forgiveness mean? And some of our definitions would be forget, forgive and, right? Some of our definitions might be tell somebody I'm sorry. And those are all understandable and they're all okay in their own right, but they're not they don't capture the biblical notion of forgiveness. So let's try to get an idea of what forgiveness is according to, to Scripture. Page 76, what does it mean to forgive? And in Matthew 18, that I've just read, the parable of the unjust, unmerciful debtor, Jesus teaches this, forgiveness involves canceling a debt. The metaphor of debt cancellation clearly defines the nature of forgiveness. The merciful king absorbed a large debt that was owed to him. When we forgive someone, we cancel a debt. But more specifically, we make a conscious choice to absorb the cost ourselves. We choose not to make the offender pay for the offense. And so, when I say I forgive you, I am saying, if you never pay for this in this life, I'm not going to exact a payment from you. I'm choosing to absorb the cost rather than pursue payment from you. And by forfeiting the right to collect, we make these three promises. Now, I want you to underline or star or circle the word promises. Because I want you to notice that biblical forgiveness is a promise, it's a commitment, it's not a feeling. 
It does not mean I feel good toward you. It does not mean what you did was okay. It does not mean, as we'll see in the pages to follow, that what you did has no ongoing consequences. It almost always does. But it's a promise, it's a commitment to do these three things. To never bring up the debt as leverage. When we forgive, we're saying that we will not make the offenders pay by reminding them of what they've done in an effort to control them. This is the same thing you always do, remember? But if you've granted forgiveness, then you're making a commitment, a promise not to do that and use it as leverage. Secondly, we promise to never bring up the offense to others and slander the persons who send against us. It doesn't mean we can't seek advice and counsel, but it does mean that we will not slander the person under the guise of getting outside advice. And then thirdly, We promise not to dwell on the offense ourselves. One of the biggest challenges when someone sins against us is to not replay the offense over and over again in our mind. And if we break one of these three promises, we have not fully forgiven. We've not truly canceled the debt. Take a look at page 77. That means then, if I'm going to absorb the cost, forgiveness is costly, but failing to forgive is more costly. Top of page 77, no matter how we spend it, forgiveness is costly. Canceling a debt and absorbing the cost is going to hurt. It is this pain that often makes true forgiveness difficult, but we need to be aware that there's a greater cost to not forgiving. What is that greater cost to not forgiving? God is going to treat us the same way we treat others. Failure to forgive means failure to be forgiven. And what I understand Jesus to be saying in Matthew chapter 6 in the disciples' prayer, if you fail to forgive others, your Father will not forgive you, is this. I'm trying to describe for you in this entire Sermon on the Mount the characteristics, the values, the speech patterns, and the behavior of those who have changed lives because of Christ. And one of the evidences that you have truly come to me and understand the forgiveness that you've received is that you're willing to forgive. Conversely, if you are not willing to forgive, you have not come to me and therefore will not be forgiven. The stakes are high. Forgiveness is costly, but failing to forgive is more costly. And a failure to forgive will, middle of the page, in italics there, have an effect on on you, the one who refuses to forgive. The unmerciful servant who before the king was the victim of his own negligence turns into a victimizer by his own unwarranted bitterness and anger. Notice what he does to the other servant. He seized him by the throat. He has him thrown in jail. It feels so natural to make someone pay. But a sense of justice quickly goes into overdrive and turns into revenge. We may not choke anyone, but we may shut others out of our lives. Bitterness gets its foot in the door. Eventually, if the situation is not addressed and forgiveness not granted, it takes over. And if we don't practice forgiveness on a daily basis with the little skirmishes, we'll begin to lose the battles and eventually cost us the war. Some of you are in that situation right now. Little battles for years. And you are now on on the verge of possibly losing the war. Jesus says you can reverse that. It's not too late, but you're on the verge. That means that forgiveness is, in italics, an event and a process. 
because I constantly have to be saying to myself and reminding myself of what Jesus has done for me in the day in and day out of interaction with another person. And so it's an event, but on an ongoing way, I have to remind myself of the promises that I have made in forgiveness and the forgiveness that has been given to me. Page 78. Forgiveness is not, contrary to popular opinion, it's not just forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting because, and then they go on to tell you that really, practically speaking, that's impossible to do. I mean, if you just think about the way your brain works, you know, I'm no neurosurgeon, that's for sure, but uh, as I understand the gray matter, it's like the coolest computer anyone's ever devised. And it's got a lot of memory. And even if you and I think our memories are not that good, it has better memory than your Mac or your PC. And there are compartments where stuff is stored. But what happens is, when we can't remember things, is not that the stuff is gone, but that the retrieval mechanism isn't working. I can't pull it out. I forgot which one box it's in. It's in a box, I just can't get it. But then something happens, six months from now, and I hear a song. Or there's a particular environment I walk into, and all of a sudden I have this flashback. You guys have all had this, haven't you? And guess what happened? that box that you forgot about got opened. It's still there. It's not gone. And there will be times where it, whatever it is, and in this case, the offense will come to your mind. And if you're living with a person, it may come to your mind a lot. So it's not forgetting. It's the promise to say, I will not dwell on it. I will put it out of my mind. And so that's why they say, first, it's not realistic. Our minds do not function this way. Our ability to remember is powerful. Second, the passage in Jeremiah, if you look just a couple passages, uh, paragraphs ahead, God says, I'll forgive their wickedness, remember their sins no more. That passage in Jeremiah does not say that God has amnesia. Our omniscient God doesn't forget anything. The word remember is not a memory, but a promise word, a covenant word. He's promising that when we confess our sins, I'll not treat you as your sins deserve. Instead, I will forgive you. And that's what we do then when we forgive. Now, let me address a, an issue that comes up with regard to forgiveness quite often. Let's suppose that I confront the person lovingly, as Jesus suggests in Matthew chapter 18, and they don't, they don't acknowledge it. I don't have witnesses, so it has to drop there. They don't think they've done anything wrong. They don't think they've sinned against me. Let's suppose that happens. Now, now what do I do? Can I really forgive somebody who doesn't ask forgiveness? Can you forgive someone who doesn't want it? Can you forgive somebody who doesn't seek it? And the answer to that technically is no. I can't forgive you if you haven't sought forgiveness. Did you know God doesn't forgive us? Don't, don't we have to ask for it? So then that raises a question, well, then what do I do? I mean, if technically I can't forgive them, then what do I do? Because if I don't deal with it, I will have this whole downward spiral described on the previous page. Bitterness, revenge, losing the battle, losing the war. What do I do? 
And here's the way to, here's the way I think we need to think of it. You can engage in unilateral forgiveness. That is, I'm going to treat you as if forgiven. But I do understand that until you acknowledge your sin, there can never be reconciliation. Forgiveness is my promise to deal with you in a particular way. Reconciliation means we both acknowledge the sin and we both deal with the sin as God describes and now we mend what has been broken. We can't mend what's been broken if you won't acknowledge you broke it. But I can still internally, unilaterally say this is the way I'm going to deal with you for Christ's sake. And so I said let's start this lesson with one question. Forgiveness. Who should forgive? We all who have received forgiveness should be willing to forgive and initiate forgiveness. And then how do I forgive? I go to the individual. And if I'm the one who has sinned, I forthrightly acknowledge that. If they've sinned, then I present them with that. If they acknowledge it, then we can be reconciled. If they don't acknowledge it, then I simply have to make a unilateral promise that before God I'm going to deal with this person this way and ask God to take care of it so that I don't become bitter and vengeful in my own heart. And then the last question is, it's who and what, but then why should I go about doing this? Excuse me, who, how, and then why should I go about doing it? Before I go to that last point of why should I do this, if you need to go and seek forgiveness from someone, I want to give you... uh, I want to give you a suggestion for how you go about doing that. There's the three promises that we've seen. That's what forgiveness is. But as you go and you say, I have sinned against you, let me give you some things that you ought to say when you approach the individual, acknowledging your sin against them. These are what are called the seven A's of confession. And... They all start with A, and there are seven of them, and I'm going to give them to you quickly, okay? The seven A's of confession. When I go to someone and I say, I've sinned against you, I do this. First, I address all the people affected. So my sin may have affected one person. It may have affected five. I address all that are affected. That's one. Two, I avoid using weasel words. I address everybody, and I avoid weasel words. You all know what I mean by weasel words. I've used this a few times in the past. Weasel words are, I guess, I sort of, you know, hey, I know I'm not perfect. What a weasel phrase that is. Wow, what a newsflash. You're not perfect. But that's the kind of weaseling we do. You know, look, I, I know I'm not perfect. I know I make mistakes, more weasel words. I know I have my faults. You're a weasel when you talk that way. It's weasel words, okay? Here's what you say. You avoid weasel words and you say, I did this. I sinned this way. So you address everybody involved. You avoid weasel words. Thirdly, you admit specifically. This is what I did. This is what I've been doing. Fourth, you acknowledge the hurt. 
You go to this person that you've sinned against and you acknowledge that I hurt you. I know that my words and my behavior or my failure to speak and do what I should have harmed you. You're trying to let the person get an idea that you get it. Fifth, you accept the consequences. Forgiveness is one thing, consequences are another. And so it may be that you stole 200 bucks from me. Unlikely since I don't have 200 bucks, but let's just say I did. And now you feel convicted, you come, you confess that, you address it, I stole the 200 bucks. Guess what one of the steps in this is going to be? Cough up the 200 bucks. Accept consequences. Sixth, alter behavior. So I acknowledge the hurt, I accept the consequences, I'm trying to communicate that I really do get this, and I alter, therefore, my behavior. If I'm really going to own up to this thing, then I am going to, by God's grace, not do what I'm confessing. I'm not going to continue in this past. I'm going to alter my behavior. And then seventh, ask forgiveness. Having done all that, I then ask, will you forgive me then for this? Now, would you guys all agree? If somebody does that, they get it. And that our relationships could be mended much quicker and in a much more substantive way if we would approach one another in that kind of biblical thoroughness. Let's conclude with page 79. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting and some of the other things that we've looked at, but notice the top of page 79 or third of the way down. Forgiveness does not mean peace at all costs. There are consequences. And even if I am willing to forgive you, there may be actions that need to be taken for your good or the good of other people who are being harmed by your actions. It does not mean peace at all, all costs. And so the Bible never says, middle of the page, make it easy for someone to sin against you. Instead, it provides a way to deal with sin in redemptive ways. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But notice, it's as far as it depends on you. Sometimes someone will take matters out of your control such that particular actions have to be taken. And so with that, I challenge each of you to consider who it is that I need to seek forgiveness from or who it is that I need to address about an offense against me. And that's the final question in our final minute. Why should I do this? Why should I? I mean, things are going along now. They're not great. They're pretty tense and all that, but we're surviving. Why should I do it? Why should I be the one to initiate it? They're the one who is at fault. They're the one who is at least most at fault. Anybody who is an objective observer would agree with that. Let's just assume that's true. Why should you do this? Here's the answer, friends. The reason you should do this is for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake, seek reconciliation. This is not first and foremost about you. It is about God. It is about Christ. It is about His reputation. And I just want to leave you with this suggestion, this challenge. Try to dream a little bit in your relationships. 
and dream by thinking about what would happen if we were to follow what Jesus requires in our relationship. What would it look like to the people at work who I've talked about my wife to if they see something happened that only God could do in reconciling us together? Why should you do this? For Christ's sake. For his reputation. What would it look like to my children if they were to see things fixed that have been broken over a long period of time? For Christ's sake, do this. Dream about what Jesus can do and how Jesus will be magnified and glorified and honored in your sphere, your circle of influence, as you take seriously what he has said about this issue of sin, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And if you care about Christ and his honor and his reputation, that will be motivation enough for you to say, Lord, I'll take the initiative to do what you have said. Let's bow before the Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for forgiving us in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. And, oh, Lord, help us to take this issue with the seriousness that Jesus applies to it. Lord, some of your most, some of your most difficult words and warnings are addressed to those of us who have unforgiving hearts. And Lord, your, your penetrating word, the sword of the Spirit, cuts to my heart and cuts to our hearts as we think about the consequences of unforgiveness. What it says about our position before you, we apparently don't realize the magnitude of the forgiveness we've received. Oh Lord, if we've never come to you and realized that, I pray that that would happen even in this moment with many here. But Lord, if we have and we've just we've grown cold, I pray that you are breaking and warming stony, cold hearts so that we'll be willing to take the actions this very day, this Lord's day, for Christ's sake. Go with us as we seek to implement these principles in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. To the glory of Jesus we pray. Amen.